Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Lamb Ministries, and I want to welcome you to our program. We're beginning a new program, a study of the Gospel of Matthew, and through each, we're just going to work right through exegetically through the book, and we're going to give teaching about it. So let me, before we actually begin to read, let me do a little bit of introduction to the book uh, for you. Matthew is one of the Gospels, um, of the four Gospels. However, it is also referred to as what they call a synoptic Gospel. It's a narrative, uh, a historical narrative of the events of Yeshua of Nazareth and how he presented himself as the Messiah. Um, and the other synoptic Gospels are Mark and Luke. John is not considered to be a synoptic Gospel, although it gives some narrative the purpose of the book of John was to try to prove that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah and to give assurances to the gift of eternal life. Whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke are really recounting, uh, because the people asked him, they said, what did he say? What did he do? Where did he come from? Uh, how did you know him? You know, what? Tell us what he said, what he taught, and so forth. And so that's what the Gospel of Matthew is trying to do for us. It is also one of the Gospels, like the Gospel of Luke, that will give us some information about the birth of Yeshua and about what was the situation before he was born. In other words, how does he fulfill the prophecies of being born the son of David? And the Messiah was to be the son of David, and so they're trying to explain that uh, and how that happens. He also gets uh, Yeshua up to the point of being in Nazareth, and the prophecies that has to do with him being from Nazareth, as you know, Yeshua chose his name to be Yeshua of Nazareth. He could have chosen Yeshua of Bethlehem. That's where he was born. He could have said Yeshua of Capernaum. That's where he ministered at as his primary ministry. Um, or he could have said Yeshua of Jerusalem because he, that's the city of the king. Uh, but instead he chose Nazareth, and we're going to talk about why he did that, and Matthew gives some of the substantiation for it as to why he chose that. Um, Matthew uh, is going to go from offering proofs that he's the Messiah into trying to give his actual teachings, to repeat what were the teachings of Yeshua. And I think the logic of his book is, is that once you wade into his teachings, that he believes, and he, I think he presents this, that the profundity of the teaching, the wisdom that's in the various teachings that he gives, is a further evidence and substantiation of him being the Messiah, that he is an excellent teacher, a better teacher than others have been, and that he's exercising uh, unbelievable knowledge and understanding of what the scriptures was really talking about, and he's offering wisdom, spiritual wisdom, on how that we can live before the Lord correctly. So with that as an introduction, we're going to wade into um, what the book has to present to us. And so let me begin with the very first verse and uh, of the book of Matthew, and as I get ready to read it, Let's begin our whole study with a word of prayer asking for God's assistance. Father, we thank you uh, for your scriptures. We thank you, Lord, for the book of Matthew. And we know these are not just academic words. We know these words have power in them. Uh, they are the statements of you 
and your goals and purposes so we know the spiritual words. We are instructed with spiritual words and spiritual thoughts. Our instruction is not like the things of the world. And so we ask, Lord, as we begin this study, that by your spirit, that you would help us to understand what is your teaching here. That in coming to terms with that teaching, that you would shape us and change us and let us walk along with the other disciples, listening to the conversations that Yeshua had with them, listening to the teachings that Yeshua gave when he was ministering here, and train us up as the disciples of Yeshua, just as he was training up the twelve that were traveling around with him. And we thank you, Lord, that you will consider our petition and grant to us. We believe that you will grant it because we know it to be your will that we all be transformed and to become a part of your kingdom and more like you. So we add, that's what we ask, Lord, and we ask that you assist us in this study to accomplish that. In Yeshua's name, amen. All right, Matthew chapter 1, it begins, The book of the genealogy of Yeshua the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now what follows here for several verses is he's going to lay out, just like what he said, the genealogy. The, and the, the word genealogy is translated in the Hebrew, it's the generations. Um, and back in the Torah, we'll hear about the generations of, and it's the genealogy. And so he's going to give you, counting from Abraham, he's going to count the number of generations. Uh, and these are going to go through the kings of Israel. Uh, all the way through King David, all the way down to him presently where he's at. And here is essentially why he's doing that. And I'm not going to read all these names. I'm going to take you down to verse 17, where it says, the conclusion of this, laying this all out, is therefore all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the time of the Messiah, 14 generations. This is one of the very interesting places that we find in the New Testament that substantiates that one of the great studies that we do in spiritual scripture is there are patterns and we get to see kind of the fingerprint of God, even though there's been multiple writers, the, the time frame of the scriptures go across many generations and many years, literally thousands of years. But we see these patterns, recurring patterns, and, we, and, and it, there's enough evidence for us to be able to conclude the writers in the day that they wrote the text that they did, they didn't, they didn't even know about these patterns. And yet these patterns emerge, if you will, like the pattern of the fingerprint. You know, when you're first born, you just have fingers. You don't realize that there's a fingerprint on every finger. And it's like these patterns indicate to us the fingerprint of God is on the story, is on the, on the scripture. And this is part of the reason why we teach that scripture is powerful. It's able to discern, um, and it is, there's a wisdom in it that comes from God that is where we can see the work of the Spirit of God. 
So our study, our journey, if you will, to understand the will of God when we study the Scriptures, is to become very aware of what the patterns are. And so what is the significance of a pattern of pointing out three levels of 14 generations? What in the world does that mean to the Hebrew people? Why did Matthew take note of that? Why is he illustrating that as one of the very first arguments to explain who Yeshua of Nazareth is? That he says, hey, if you count the generations from Abraham up to this point, and you count from David to the Babylonian exile, and then from the Babylonian exile back to the time of Yeshua, 14, 14, 14. Well, not only does there symmetry in what we're talking about, there's 14, 14, 14, that's called symmetry. Um, there's, there's something else at work, that we're seeing that God has planned this. Here's his fingerprints on the evidence of what we are dealing with. The One of the explanations, and there are a couple of different explanations on this, but one of the explanations that I tend to favor is if you understand the thematic understanding of numbers, and every number that they have that the Bible uses, that we use, um, has a certain uh, thematic understanding it goes with. For example, the number one. The number one has to do with God. Um, you know, if you remember, the Lord specifically says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I mean, there's actual scripture that says it. So what does that mean when it says the Lord is one? Well, if you see the number one, it means something. You know, there, there isn't, there's a spiritual understanding that goes with it. If, let me just quickly review so you just have a sense of what it is. This is a completely separate study on its own. Um, and I'm not trying to cover that right now. I'm just showing you what is the basis of the explanation for why Matthew put this together in his gospel. Number one is about God. Number two has to do with relationships between God and man, balance. Um, if you look at the two tablets, five of the commandments are about your relationship with God, five of the commandments are about your relationship with a man. And even Paul ministers to us and talks about, herein do I exercise myself continually, have a constant void of offense toward God and toward man. You know, there's balance. The Jacob in his life is dealing with how do I reconcile what God's plan is for my life and how do I deal with my brother Esau and Laban, for that matter, that are opposed to it. How do, how do I deal with them? Where's the balance in how to do that? And interesting enough, Jacob, when he sends gifts to his brother Esau, if you look, the most significant digit of all the gifts is the number two. Twenty of this, two hundred of that, you know, and so forth. Not one hundred, not three hundred, two hundred, twenty. You know, those, those are the kinds of things. You see that number reoccurring. The number three has to do with fathers and covenants. And I won't go into more explanation, but let me just uh, say it. Number four has to do with the Messiah. That number keeps repeating as a number having to do with the Messiah. The number five has to do with grace, mercy, and faith. The number six has to do with man. The number seven has to do with the plan of God. Eight has to do with new beginnings. Nine has to do with judgments. Ten has to do with the confidence in God. 
our confidence is in God. Number 11 doesn't really have a value. In fact, what it is is the repeat of the number 1. The next number that is carries it thematic is 12, and that's the one that represents the government of God, theocracy. And there was 12 sons, 12 tribes uh, that formed the government of Israel. Now, there's other numbers that go all the way up, and in fact, there's a vast study uh, that has to do with it. The number 666 has to do with the Antichrist, um, and um, where you and and it comes down to what is we call the most significant digit and the other digit, and the and there's a combination of it. So, what is 14? Why would we emphasize 14? Well, first of all, it has to do with confidence in God. And the number four is about the Messiah, that our confidence in God is put in the faith of the Messiah. We see the pattern of by putting our faith in, in the Messiah, we put our confidence in God, and here's the pattern of him coming forth uh, for us. So that that is a, a stellar example in the New Testament that talks about all these types of studies. Um one of the studies of the book of Revelation is the number of sevens, sets of sevens. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, there are 57 different sets of sevens in that book alone. And part of coming to understand the book of Revelation is to see those different sets and to see what additional layer of understanding that comes from the book by seeing those and recognizing uh, John lays out the first seven days of Yeshua's ministry, emphatically laying out the first seven days. And that's a, a very special study when you go through. Again, it comes down to seeing the patterns. There are seven feasts of Israel, seven days in the week. Um, the eighth day of the week is the beginning of a new new week. It's a new beginning of a week and uh, for it. So, with that said, that's what Matthew's doing here. He's trying to substantiate and let us know that there is a pattern that brought forth the Messiah for us. Let's continue on. Verse 18. Now, the birth of Yeshua the Messiah was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and betrothed, you know, we say marriage, but really it's engagement. Betrothal is an engagement. Marriage is actually when you enter the covenant. Um, Betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And obviously that's not the way it's supposed to work. You're not supposed to be with child until after the marriage covenant is put together. So a betrothal is not sufficient you know, for it. So this sets up the conflict immediately. Wow, something something is happening here. There's, there's something significant happening here. Um, and it goes on, verse 19, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, he desired to put her away secretly. He thought she had been unfaithful to him. You know, how can you be pregnant? We haven't got together. How can, you know, you've been unfaithful to me. Um But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, 
for it is he who will save his people from their sins. The word Yeshua in the Hebrew means salvation. So essentially that verse is saying you should call him salvation for he will save his people from their sins. So here we are at the name of Yeshua, why he's going to be named and called that. All right. Verse 22, now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, here is Matthew literally assisting you and saying, hey, the name uh, Emmanuel, it means God is with us. And he's assisting you to understand what that, that means. He's actually given you the Hebrew name, Emmanuel, and, and he's emphasizing what really is that prophecy is that God was going to be with us. For all of those that don't think that Yeshua is God, you have to rip these verses out of your Bible. Because these verses right here prove that the prophecy said that the Messiah would come and be a son and come and dwell with us, that he would be God with us. For those who argue that Yeshua is not God, you're, you're, you're barking up against the wrong wall here because this one clearly says differently. So enough said on that particular issue. Yeshua is God who came in the flesh, and he was prophesied to do so. This verse that he's quoting from here comes from Isaiah chapter 7 and in verse 14 where it says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. There's an argument that is made by um, rabbis that the word there in, in Isaiah 7:14, the word for virgin that's translated virgin, actually should be translated a young, a young maiden, a young lady. Uh, and it has nothing to do with um, the uh, being a virgin uh, in the in the sense of that we think of virgin as having not been with a man. However, the word virgin in the Bible doesn't mean you haven't been with a man. The word virgin in the Bible means that you're a virtuous person and that you're without sin, that you're you're virtuous, that you're pure, you're holy, you 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 you're not, you know, you're you're new and fresh kind of thing. And so when it says that a virgin shall bear a child, what it's really saying is a very virtuous person is going to bear a child. That's really what it's saying. Now the fact that we have the story here in this chapter about Joseph being concerned about, you know, he was betrothed but not married yet, that's already been addressed. That was addressed directly by the Lord. So the prophecy uh, is saying that it called Mary a virgin, not because she wasn't married yet to Joseph, but because she was a virtuous person and she was selected by God uh, for this purpose. When you go to the Gospel of Luke, you see more detail with regard to how Mary was selected and the conversations that Gabriel had with her and so forth. So so he's repeating now the prophecy of, of um, Isaiah to substantiate his birth. Verse 24, And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took her as his wife, meaning 
he married her. At that point, he married her, even though she was pregnant. And kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Yeshua. What does that mean? That means that he kept her in the original status that God was using her in. He did not have conjugal relations with his wife during this time until after the son was born. So that what God was doing with her was strictly with her. And even though he was married to her, that he himself maintained that relationship that she had with God for the purpose of bringing forth the son, Yeshua. And then once he was born, then he could enter into what we consider to be a full marital relationship with um, Mary at that point. And as a result, while we know that uh, she had other children and there were brothers and sisters to Yeshua uh, through her. Um, But this is a very significant element because it appears not only was Mary specifically called for this task, but that Joseph himself supported her in this so that the Messiah could come forth according to God's plan uh, from that. Had he had relations with her at any time during before this birth, an argument could have been made, well, you know, they obviously messed around together and this kid is really a, a descendant of the two of them. Whereas they maintained this testimony so it would be forever testified to us that only God and Mary were involved in her conception and that therefore he was, he was brought forth uh, and the normal marriage relationship was not initiated until after he came forth. That's a very important point uh, with regard to authenticating how he fulfilled the prophecy that a virgin shall bring forth a son. Uh, for it. All right, chapter 2. Now, after Yeshua was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Messiah was <clears throat> was to be born. And they said, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd his people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way. And lo, uh, the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over them where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came in the house and saw the child and Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. We believe that the Magi um, 
came from the east. We believe that they came from the areas of Mesopotamia, the areas where Daniel and the Babylonians used to be. We know that in that culture that there were those who were astronomers and astrologers. And whether you realize it or not, all astrology originates out of Mesopotamia and originates from the Babylonians. The whole zodiac originates from there. So they look to the heavens to understand what, what is the creator doing with the whole world. And I'm certain that Daniel probably explained to them that there is this Messiah king who would be coming because there already were other prophecies that said that. And so they became intrigued with that, and apparently they saw an astronomical sign in the heavens begin to emerge, and they claimed it was the star that was a signal to them for them to go to Judea, Jerusalem, and go see this new king that they knew was supposed to come. And so the Magi, who were studying all those things, they knew it would be in Judea, but they weren't sure what city or what town and so they go and present themselves to King Herod. And they say, hey, this is the reason why we came. We see this sign in the heavens. Uh, we believe that you're supposed to have a king born here, and he'll be the king of all of you people. And uh, what, what city should we go to? Where, where is he prophesied to be in what city here? And so Herod, you know, uh, it says that he's troubled. He says all the scribes are troubled. It says all the leading people are troubled. And here's the reason why. If there's a new king coming, he could be making some changes around here. I mean, King Herod is king. I mean, if he's supposed to be Messiah king, does that mean that we replace Herod? You know, Herod's going, well, how do I fit into this scenario? So he's concerned about his position. Religious leaders, we know the Messiah is to be uh, the supreme uh, teacher of the Torah. You know, the Torah shall go forth out of, out of Zion, the word of the Lord out of Jerusalem. That's a prophecy about the Messiah. So if he's going to be the king and he's going to be the supreme teacher of the commandments of God, what about all the religious leaders? So, you know, what, what about us? You know, where, where do we fit in this whole thing? And it's hinting at, from the very beginning, they were uncomfortable with the coming of the Messiah. This was not a, a joyous thing for them. It might be a joyous thing for other people, but it's not a joyous thing for them. Let me just take a moment and just say to you, the more you talk about the coming of the Messiah in the days that we live, the more uncomfortable you're going to make political and religious leaders. You're going to make them uncomfortable. In fact, it is a general well-known thing. There's a lot of religious leaders. This is going to be a shock to you. They don't want to talk about the coming of the Messiah. Don't talk about the Messiah coming in this generation. Don't talk about the last generation. We, we don't want to hear that stuff. Now, they poo-poo it by saying, well, nobody knows, and blah, 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 and so forth. But they don't, they don't want any questioning about what their status is and the position that they're in. Uh, the same thing is true of the government. Um, I'm, I'm going to make an interesting statement to all of you. You do know that by you standing up in your faith and saying that you believe that Yeshua of Nazareth is going to return as the king of kings and is going to rule the earth and establish his kingdom here, you are at that moment guilty of treason. 
because you're advocating the violent overthrow of every government in this world. And by the way, that's exactly what Yeshua says he's going to do. He's going to come back on the day of the Lord and violently overthrow every government set up against him. And he will be victorious and he will be the king of the whole world. This is why Chinese Christians are being prosecuted and killed in China. China understands this. The Chinese government knows that if you go around advocating Christian principles for Christians, you're advocating the overthrow of the Chinese regime. You're giving hope to the people contrary to them. And so they see it as a treasonous act worthy of death. It's just that the rest of the world hasn't figured out that that's what the legal aspect of this is. But the day is coming when they're going to. And that's the reason why the scripture talks about in the last days the oppression of the saints and that some will be delivered up to death. It's because the government's going to finally figure out that when Yeshua decides to come back here, and if we start advocating he's about to come, that we're advocating, we're, we're committing treason for them. We're advocating the violent overthrow of those governments. And that's the, the definition of treason. You advocate the violent overthrow of a duly sworn government. So they're concerned about that. They're concerned about this king that might be coming. Well, the Magi are simply interested in getting to the place and observing this incredible event of the coming of the Messiah to Israel, and uh, they you know, come and present the gifts. Now, there's a whole series of other studies that have been done. Like, what was this star? What did this look like? What was happening in the heavens, That and when did that happen, and how would they have interpreted that as being that? And you've got to understand that you've got to go back into the ancient understandings of how they viewed the heavens. You know, the scripture says to us, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, astrology has a different explanation for other gods, and it ties into mythology. That We're not talking about theology, we're talking about mythology. Um, and so, typically, what we have in the zodiac and those other things, is a distortion of whatever it is that God put there in place. But at this particular point, these magi apparently still understood what was the original teaching on some of this before the whole Babylonian zodiac thing got going. Um, Do we still have that? We have some hints of it, but we don't have a full comprehensive thing. And... By the way, we're not anticipating that God's going to show another star sign to us about the coming of the Messiah and said he's going to use all the heavens for that. Um, so trying to go back and figure out, there's a lot of planetariums, you know, that, um, you know, where you go and study the heavens and stars and constellations and so forth. Uh, a lot of planetariums in some of the big cities will put together a, each December a um, the Bethlehem store, star, their best theory, and you know, the whole universe is like a giant clock, you know, with all the heavenly bodies moving around. And you can count the years back and see what the sky would have looked like because all of these things are in known orbits and so forth. And so they have gone back, and the best thing they have found is a period of time at approximately 3 to 4 B.C. 
that there was a combination of stars that lined up with certain constellations and certain stars, and that there was the Virgin, Virgo, having to do with the lion, Leo, the lion is of the leader, and there was a certain star that appeared, appeared much brighter because it came into conjugation with another star and it added its brightness to it. And they believe that might be the best shot at how things happen that caused the Magi in the East to interpret that. Um, and it's kind of a fascinating program to go see. I don't know that it's exactly the one that really happened, but... It's still there's still some evidence to suggest that that could have been it. In any case, they go to Jerusalem. They ask where he's at. I think the next most intriguing thing that we need to consider is the religious leaders had been advocating the coming of the Messiah. This was a common understanding amongst the Hebrew people throughout the land that we're looking for the the Messiah to come. Now you would think that if a group of guys showed up and they had some new evidence that lent some more understanding into the subject and they said, we believe that he's been born and we want to go see where he's been. We, we believe he's in the world with us today. You would have thought that the religious leaders would have jumped all over this and they would have beaten the Magi down to Bethlehem to go see this thing for themselves. But they didn't. They didn't do it. So you got to ask yourself the question, the Magi went down there. Why didn't the religious leaders go down there? Because the religious leaders are looking for the Messiah even more than the Magi are. And here's the expectation, or here's the reason for it. Being born in Bethlehem may have a prophecy on it, but that's not what they're expecting. They had basically put that prophecy down. They knew that the Messiah ultimately was be the, the city of the king would be Jerusalem. So in their mind, regardless of where he is born, he's got to come to Jerusalem. He's got to check in with them, and they would be the ones that would certify to all of Israel that this is the Messiah. And in the course of doing that, I think they were thinking, we can then negotiate our position to join with the Messiah and we'll be in charge with the Messiah. That was their thinking. So here's the problem, though, with that thinking. If the Messiah really is the Messiah and he's really God amongst us, he doesn't have to check in with any man. He's here to do the bidding of his father. He does not need approval from any priest. He doesn't need any approval from any king, he doesn't need the approval of the people to be who he is. He is who he is. And I think that's the, the, the setup of the conflict. So as Yeshua is going to continue to develop, minister, and so forth, there's going to be this conflict. Now, you're going to hear one more incident while Yeshua is in his young age where he gets an opportunity to, to interchange with religious leaders and that's a fascinating part of the story of this. And it lends itself to, again, the scholars and the religious leaders not quite understanding how the Messiah is really supposed to come forth. And so that's part of the story of how Yeshua's ministry is going to begin. This is the atmosphere. This is the landscape 
in which the Messiah will come and begin to uh, minister to it. And I read to you how they departed by another way, because they were warned, don't go back, because... And because they gave the evidence of when they first saw the star, that's when Herod is now going to attempt to kill the Messiah. He's going to remember when they first saw the star, and that's the reason why he wants to kill any children within the first two years of age. They could be two years ago that the star began to emerge and they before they made the journey. Um, the part of this is going to go into about when he gave... Um, these gifts to to the son, he's not sitting in the manger when the magi, like the, the, the manger scene that we see for Christmas, here's the magi bowing to worship the king, here's the baby in the manger, you know, here's the, the donkey and the cow standing around watching and so forth. No, we actually believe that when the magi showed up, they were in Bethlehem, but they um, the child had already grown, was a toddler probably at the age of two or close to it. And so when they came, and because the word that's used for the son is not an infant son, but is a young toddler son. Um, And so the idea of the Magi coming at the same night of the birth or right there at the time of the birth, that's not correct. There was the birth. They're in Bethlehem. The Magi come, make to Jerusalem. Then they go to Bethlehem looking for him. They find him. And then they give the gifts, and then they return. And that's the reason why Herod wants to destroy all the children to and under, because it could be in that zone of where it was at. So let's continue on here. Um, Verse 13. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there, until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and and was there until the death of Herod, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt did I call my son. And that phrase, out of Egypt did I call my son, is a quote from Hosea chapter 11. Um the synchronicity of the two events is the Magi show up, and because Herod knows about now that there's word that he's been born, Joseph is then immediately told, you have to flee. As the Magi departed and went back a different way, so they couldn't be traced by Herod, uh, the, the Joseph took loaded up uh, Mary and, and, the, and, and Yeshua, and by night, clandestine left the city. Why did he leave by night? Because if he'd have done it in the daytime, depending on which road that he took, there would have been witnesses to tell King Herod, oh, yeah, he was here, but he went that road, that direction, and they would have known what direction he was going. So he went by night, so there was no witnesses that could say, you know, this is the road he took, or this, he went to the north, he went to the east, he went to the south, he went whatever. They, 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 they couldn't report that, so he had no idea which one they had gone. So by the time they had gone to Egypt, he was out of the clutches of Herod, and Herod couldn't reach him. And they essentially stay there until Herod dies, um, when there's a new replacement king, and Herod's not, Herod's not trying to kill the Messiah king um, anymore. Um, verse 16. 
but, oh, by the way, let me mention this in verse 15. Out of Egypt did I call my son. If you go read that verse, this is intriguing. If you go read that verse in Hosea 11, that phrase, out of Egypt did I call my son, if you read it in the context of Hosea 11, is describing Israel coming out of Egypt. That Israel is my son that's coming out of Egypt. It's not a direct reference to the Messiah. In other words, you would have to understand that what Matthew's really saying is, if you're talking Israel, you are at the same time talking the Messiah. Why? Because the Messiah is the king of Israel. He represents Israel. So that's how you have the parallelism that even though it was ancient Israel that came out of Egypt, at the same time it is that the Messiah came out. By the way, when the children of Israel left Egypt, they took the bones of Joseph, which was the symbol of the Messiah. The brother who had been raised up above him, rejected by his countrymen, you know, who was the bread man of life and had delivered the people. And he was brought out of Egypt to be buried in the land of Israel. Um, and, and part of the, th- those are messianic themes. By the way, in, if you follow up in Genesis, Jacob was told that when he went down to Egypt with his children, that I, the Lord, will go with you. So therefore, if he went down there with him, he has to come up out of there. And we see the evidence of that the Lord did bring the children of Israel out of Egypt, as he promised. We believe the Messiah is God, so he was part of that. So this is not a stretch at all for Matthew to take that verse in Hosea 11 and say, out of Egypt did I call my son and make reference to the Messiah. The Messiah is integrated in all of that story, um, every which way there is. So, um, and then it says that, uh, that verse 16, And then Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi. He became very enraged and sent and slew all the children who were in Bethlehem and all of its environs from two years old and under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Ramah, the burial place of, of um, Re- not Rebecca, but of uh, Jacob's wife, the one he loved the most, Rachel, uh, is buried uh, between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. That's the burial place of Rachel. And that's called Ramah. And to this day, that burial place is known, and it's very close. And so Herod said, Rachel in her tomb was weeping because she saw all the children that were in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions that were slain uh, by that. If you remember, Rachel died in giving birth to Benjamin. So she And she called Benjamin the son of my sorrows. And um, whereas Jacob changed his name to Benjamin, which means the son of my right hand. By the way, that's a picture of the Messiah. The Messiah is the son of sorrows and at the same time the son of the right hand um, in doing that. So that brings us to this first part of our opening the study up of the book of Matthew. And when we come together again, we will start um, here at verse 19 of chapter 2. I look forward to seeing you. 
at the next study. Shalom, everyone.